Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Solomon Rajput, who's running for office in Michigan's 12th Congressional District. Solomon Rajput, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. You're a 28-year-old medical student who's running against Debbie Dingle, who replaced her late husband, John Dingle, who at the time had been the longest-serving U.S. congressman in U.S. history. As you talk about, there's been a dingle in the seat for 85 years. Why have you decided to run? Because that's quite a stark contrast between you and your opponent. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, before her husband had it, uh, his dad actually had it, which is crazy. The reason why I'm running is because um, the establishment has totally failed us. I mean, all they know how to do is to think small. Um, and I think that it's clear that by now, we can't just keep putting Band-Aids on our broken systems and expecting things to change. We need to go out there and fight for the big, bold policies that are going to address our issues at a fundamental structural level. And we begged and pleaded with other politicians for a long time to go out there and fight for these big changes, but they've ignored us time and time again. And after a while, we have to realize that we can only beg for so long before it's clear that these people, they're never going to go out there and fight for what we need to get done. They are never going to change. So if we want to get this stuff done, we got to go do it ourselves because at this point we're done waiting. And there's so many issues we're done waiting on, um, namely like the five. We have five big issues that we're focused on. So number one is, uh, and you know, I'll just touch on this for like two seconds, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more in depth. But number one is climate change and um, fighting climate change through a Green New Deal, um, making college free and eliminating student debt, making sure that everyone has health care, uh, like all the other developed countries, through a Medicare for all system. Um, getting big money out of our political system and ensuring racial justice that is long overdue for uh, the black community in this country um, and really supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. So those are kind of our five big core policies that we're focused on that um, many, most of which Congresswoman Dingell is just, you know, totally not on board with. So, so uh, you know, um, for us also, we're a progressive district. We, 70% of the vote goes to Democrat, uh, Democrats in our beautiful state of Michigan. Um, we're a very progressive district, and we need a representative who's going to represent these progressive values. You proudly describe yourself as a progressive, but there are those who potentially agree with your policies, but they're concerned by that progressive label. I know you say that Michigan's a progressive state, but obviously there are politicians and even voters who feel a bit uncomfortable saying they're progressive. Even if they support those ideas, they fear it being weaponized. We've seen the Republicans weaponize the progressive movement. Why are you so unafraid to bear that label compared to others out there who, who as I say, share your values and your beliefs? Yeah, well, I think um, I think we have to really remember, like, what truly is radical here. You know, I mean, you live in England. Like, people have correctly pointed out to me, I live 30 minutes away from Canada, right? I'm, I'm in Michigan. And so people have correctly pointed out to me that um, what we think of as radical in this country is really just a status quo in other countries. You know, we're not trying to be crazy. Um, 
we're just trying to be a little bit more Canadian, a little bit more European, right? So like, what's really, I mean, you guys have the NHS, Canada has a single, like has a healthcare for all people in their country. Um, so when we're asking for things like Medicare for all or other progressive policies, nothing we're asking for is radical. I mean, we're just trying to play catch with the rest of the world. What's really radical here is insist that we can't do this, that we're too uniquely incompetent or incapable or dysfunctional backwards to get this done. I mean, I think it's becoming clear by the day that the only thing that's radical here is the status quo, and it's barbaric <laughs> in the United States of America. And I think at this point, we're done waiting on our politicians who can make excuses for why we can't do what the rest of the world already has done. Do you think they label these ideas as radical because they want to try and weaponize it because that's easier than actually addressing these fundamental problems out there that exist in the system? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, like, without a doubt. It's just like, uh, I mean, the fact that we are so backwards is a triumph of the corporate elite and the, uh, the defenders of the status quo because they've essentially, you know, fed this narrative, fed this propaganda fed the cynicism to the American people that literally this is all we can ever expect. This is all we can ever hope for. So if we want to, and if we are asking for anything else, um, it's just out of the question. Uh, even if a country 30 minutes to the north of us, um, 30 minutes to the north of where I live, uh, has implemented this stuff already for decades. You know, they're like trying to make us believe that um, we're the problem. Our aspirations for what this country could be is a problem um when in reality the status quo is a problem and it's um and it's not just that it's much more difficult to address i mean certainly it's easier to just like call ideas crazy than to actually try to address them but like people are being paid to uh, um keep things the way they are right and like it, it's in, it's not a lack of imagination it's just a matter of corruption um so uh, when people are being paid to say they don't believe in climate change, um, <laughs> that they uh, that they believe that um, our we need to do things differently, and that if we're in terms of a healthcare system in our country, and that um, it's acceptable to have tens of thousands of people die every single year in our broken healthcare system, um, you know, they're catering to the private health insurance companies, right? And um, there are so many examples of different types of legislation that is. Uh, not acted upon because people are actively being paid by uh, the defenders of the status quo, like the corporations or the lobbyists, to um, to not act on those issues. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's corruption. <laughs> Given the stark contrast between you and your opponent is something I'm sure that you're going to come up against from critics of your campaign, which is you're 28 years old, you're a medical student, you have had previous work in politics. You founded Michigan Resistance, which seeks to stop bad bills in Michigan State Legislature. But what would you say to people who say, you've not got the political experience here, you're not a career politician, or you've not worked in politics to the same extent as your opponent? How do you fend off that attack? Yeah, for sure. Well, I've been involved in politics for years now, like you said. So um, I founded this group called the Michigan Resistance, which is stopped uh, 10, uh, which has made tens of thousands of calls to stop Republican legislation in um, in the state of Michigan. Um, and it's been the most active volunteer run uh, activist group in our state. So that has been really great. Um, and uh, it's been um, a triumph of activism and of like organizing. So uh, I've, I've been an organizer for years. Um, but I would like to, so I have a lot of political experience, but I would like to ask, um, what is all of the political experience of the political royalty in this country producing for the American people? I mean, like, 
you know, you have 87 years under your belt. <laughs> um, what, what, what can you point to that you've been fighting for? And I think that um, right now, all of the political experience that the political elite has um, is experience really in doing nothing and like not achieving anything meaningful with the American people and not even wanting to fight for those things. I mean, we understand that not one person cannot just change the entire system themselves, right? And one person can't like unilaterally enact change in this country. But what one person can do is be an unapologetic champion for what people in this country need for us to get done. And um, if you can't even meet that, what I perceive to be a very low bar, then um, then maybe you have the wrong kind of experience. And maybe we need somebody with experience who better understands what people in this country are going through and are is more likely to fight for those people and wants to fight for those people rather than people who have the experience of living in an ivory tower um, separated from <laughs> the concerns uh, and uninterested in uh, addressing them in an, uh, the, separated from the concerns of the people of America and uninterested in addressing them in a meaningful, urgent way. One area where people can't accuse you of not having full experience is in being a student in the current education system in America. And with that, obviously, an understanding of the cost of trying to secure an education in America. You're a medical student, as we mentioned. You've racked up over $100,000 in student debt in the few years that you've been studying, training to be able to provide care for your fellow citizens in America. How would you begin to reform America's tuition fees problems? It's uh, such a uniquely American problem, right? I mean, like people from other countries, I'm sure your country, they look at how much we pay for school and they're like, wow, it's crazy Americans can pay that much or, or like have to pay that much for school. That's crazy. Americans must be so rich. Wow, it must be great to be an American. I mean, a lot of people have said that to me and I'm like, no, that, my friend, that's not what's going on. We just spend decades of our adult lives in lots and lots of student debt. And um, it's uh, I it's um, it's gotten so bad. I mean, for me, uh, being $100,000 in debt in, over, in two years of medical school, that's a bargain. I mean, like, it's unfortunately in America... I have in-state tuition, like, you know, you can have uh, in-state versus out-of-state. And so um, based out, so like if you live in the state, if you're a resident of the state that you are attending um, school in, then you get uh, reduced tuition, essentially. And so like this is the reduced tuition um, that we have, which is crazy. So, so um, I mean, you know, what's clear is that we need to make college free and eliminate student debt in this country. And but people love to ask, well, how are you going to pay for that? And the answer is we're going to use the vast wealth uh, and resources of the richest country that has ever existed in the history of mankind. I mean, here's the thing. We're a rich country. We need to start acting like it. We're not a poor country that's just barely getting by. We've got all of this money. What do we spend on? We spend on dumb stuff. We spend on these useless wars, this bloated military budget, corporate tax breaks. I mean, the amount of money we gave to corporations tax breaks, it's more money than we need to eliminate all students in this country. So, you know, people love to say, well, I don't think that's feasible. How are we going to pay for that? But when was the last time you heard someone say, well, how are we going to pay for the wars? How are we going to pay for these tax breaks? I mean, they never ask that, but the second we want to do something to improve the lives of our own people, like making college free and eliminating student debt so that people don't have to pay this extortionist amount of money, um, all of a sudden we don't have enough money for that. Why not? I mean, it's clearly just a matter of priorities and not of financial ability. That issue of people saying, how will you pay for this? How will you pay for that? Is something that comes up time and time again when people put forward these proposals and you sort of touched on your response to 
those critics in that answer there. But how do you fend off that? Right, exactly. I mean, I think we, it's, it's so much about framing, right? I, I say, like, we're going to pay for them using the exact same ways we pay for the wars and the tax breaks for the multi, for the um, billion-dollar corporations that ask for them. Um, but uh, in particular, I mean, there's, you know, there's clearly ways for us to raise revenue in this country, right? Um, and so ways we can roll back tax rates for corporations that were given needlessly. We can uh, create a tax on the hyper-wealthy in this country, people who have tens of millions of dollars on their net worth that they're just sitting on. Um, we can so we can tax that right, and we can make sure that they are contributing their fair share in our country. Um, we can also <clears throat> we can also make sure that corporations are paying their fair share. I mean, you know, it's uh, everybody is frustrated by the fact that Amazon paid zero dollars in federal income taxes. So that is also um, a huge concern that um, needs to be addressed as, in a way for us to invest in our social safety net. But really, I mean, it's it's all red herring, right? Because, like, we are the richest country that has ever existed in the history of mankind. There are other countries that do this stuff. So it's not – we know that it can be done. We don't have to be innovators. We can go and we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. We can essentially follow what other countries have already figured out. Um, and it is also the case that we – Sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought. But we, um, we're we such a rich country, but people feel like we're a poor country. They feel like we don't have enough money to do anything. And I feel like it doesn't matter how much money this country has. People will always feel that way. And the reason for that is because they have been fed this narrative, this like cynical propaganda that says, like, this is all that we can ever expect our country to do. And so anything more is um, too much. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how much money we have. It doesn't matter how rich our country is. It's just out of the question. And I don't think that we can ever get to a point um, like how much where we have so much money where people start feeling comfortable with it, um, surely from a financial perspective. Uh, like how much rich, how much more rich do we need to be before people like start before these cynical people um, start feeling like oh actually like we can pay for it. So I think that I think you know. It's um, incumbent upon us to explain like this how we will pay for it. That's fine. Like we know we know what we're talking about. We've thought it through, but at the same time, um, it's clear that this can happen. And uh, the fact that we haven't already done it is what the, what's really problematic here. You mentioned how companies don't pay their fair share of tax in America, and specifically mentioned Amazon there. But we see how when there's issues such as the current coronavirus outbreak, companies, wealthy corporations get billions of dollars in corporate bailouts from the government, which are funded by the U.S. taxpayer. Do you think that companies that don't pay their fair share of tax should be ineligible to receive such bailouts? If they're not putting into the pot, they can't take out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's, it's a systemic issue, right? It's a, I mean, our, our country just does not um, require in this moment, given uh, the, how the laws are currently written, um, for it does not require for uh, people, for companies to pay their fair share. I mean, Amazon was within its legal uh, authority to pay that, to pay zero dollars in taxes, right? It is like, uh, and because the laws have been written in a way where essentially corporations can get away with paying zero dollars in income taxes, and that is legal. So I think it's, 
um, really, it's a, it's a situation where we need to make sure that we change the laws so that corporations are legally required to pay their fair share. You know, and the reason the laws are the way that they are is because of corruption and because of um, corporations paying our politicians uh, to write the rules in their favor. So it's really, I think, a systemic issue that needs to be it's um, uh, and it needs to be addressed at a systemic level. There's recently been this national conversation in America about systemic inequality, not just on the environment, but particularly in the criminal justice system, but also across all aspects of life. And we've seen various different solutions being put forward, tackling the issues in the environmental one, tackling the inequality that exists in education and healthcare are another. But one that's really come out of these conversations is that we should defund the police. Mm-hmm. Where do you stand on this issue? Yeah, no, I do believe we should defund and demilitarize the police. And um, what does the word defund mean? It means that we are going to take a portion of the police budget that is going towards police and reallocate it to social services for uh, for local communities. So right now, um, many communities are under-resourced, but still we find enough, we find plenty of money to be able to um, put uh, excessive amounts of money into our police departments. Um, but we somehow do not have enough money to provide mental health services or um, services around uh, addiction or social services, so um, like social work services. So it's essentially saying, let's try to build strong, healthy communities and have our budgets reflect that by allocating some of the money to strengthen our community through providing these social services. And that is a great way to prevent and reduce crime. Um, and for, the, for, of course, if there are like you know, violent crimes or crimes that really do need uh, law enforcement to step in, then uh, there is going to be that institution. Um, however, it's really trying to focus on building healthy and strong communities in order for us to actually prevent many crimes to happen in the first place. To put that in context for listeners, Rashida Tlaib, who is Congresswoman in Michigan, talked about the issues in Detroit when it comes to the budget, stating that Detroit spent $294 million on police last year and $9 million on health. So for listeners, this isn't about making communities less safe, which is one of the criticisms of the defund the police movement that we're seeing. It's about ensuring that the citizens don't need that reliance on the police for everything. So if it's a mental health issue, there'd be those services for mental health support. If it's a health issue, again, healthcare support. If it's a social services issue, again, social services support, rather than everything coming down to being a policing issue. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think right now our budgets are not reflecting the priorities that and the values that this country and the uh, and communities need to have to invest in our own citizens. I mean, it seems like anything that invests in the health and the well-being of our citizens and our communities always is like, um, second tier to like the military and police and and the needs of corporations. So, like uh, I think that really um, 
so many people in America are they like yearning for like a for a realignment of um, our policies so that it reflects the values that we hold, which is that we need to make our country work for people and not work for you know for the, for corporations, for the police, for the military. There are individuals out there, not just young people, but often young people are cited as this group who've become essentially unenthused by politics because they've been looking at what's going on and they've seen members of Congress who aren't pushing policies that are in their interests, even if the population as a whole in America collectively agrees those policies are the right way forward. Congress doesn't take those steps. Your campaign ad, your key campaign ad, is titled We're Done Waiting. Is that something you believe is key here? Because young people feel that they're told time and time again to wait for the right time to implement their policies. Minorities in America are told time and time again to wait for the right time to implement their policies. But for them, the time just never seems to come. Yeah, I mean, we are done waiting, right? Like, we have no time left to wait. <laughs> There's so many issues that um, are that uh, where where we are like absolutely running out of time, namely climate change, right? With climate change, we have a short ten year window to address this crisis in the uh, before we reach a point of no return and run the path to catastrophic irreversible global warming. So we can't, we don't have time to do this incremental baby step nonsense any longer. We can't just make some random committee that's going to make some eight year plan that's going to take an effect when everyone is dead or someone else's problem. Like that is not going to cut it. So I think that um, the youth uh, and also just many people uh, in this country, many progressive people in this country, they um, they want to see our politicians acting with urgency, you know. And Greta Thunberg really put it nicely when she says that like we want this now. She's like I like today now, like yesterday now, not like not like in ten, not not. She's like not even in like ten years. Like we need this right now and. Um, we don't see that urgency from our elected leaders. It's just like a lot of, it's a lot of, oh, like we're doing stuff. Just trust us. Like things are getting done. Like you guys don't understand the process. Like you know, it, it, these things are much more complicated than you than you would know. So, um, so just like have patience and like try and and we'll get it figured out. And we're like we've been doing that for decades, man. Like we, I mean, we have been doing that for decades. The same problems that, um we had when I was really little, we still have right now. I mean, like, why is it that healthcare is literally our biggest issue every election cycle? After a while, it should not be the biggest issue because we should have properly addressed it, right? And like in Canada, you know, I've talked to people from Canada all the time, healthcare is not their biggest issue. <laughs> like, because they have a, uh, I mean, certainly they have, you know, problems with the healthcare system, like any system, but it's not always the singular biggest issue every single election cycle because they've like properly addressed it. So. So, yeah, we need to see a lot more urgency coming from um, our elected leaders. And I, people are just really fed up with the fact that it seems like they're asleep at the wheel. While it might seem like a costly proposal, when you look at the costs in not having such a system, in particular America having such a widespread coronavirus outbreak that has halted and impacted the U.S. economy to the extent that it has. It's not about the cost of the proposal. It's about the cost yeah. of not having the proposal. Right, Exactly. Yeah, no, and they're just such – they're problems that only exist in America, right? I mean, like, in other countries, they hear that we don't want to go to the doctor. We don't want to call an ambulance because we're worried about how much it's going to cost. And, like, isn't that – isn't the point of ambulance 
to like help you in an emergency to get you to the hospital quickly. Um, because in America, people take Ubers. I mean, I don't, I'm sure people have heard of that, but they're like, do not say, they will tell people, even if they are having like really concerning symptoms, like symptoms that they might attribute to a heart attack, um, they're like, do not call an ambulance. I'll get an Uber or I'll drive myself because I cannot afford a three or 4,000 just like ambulance bill. Um, and so it, it's just it's such a like weird backwards way of thinking. And, you know, I talk to a lot of people from a lot of different places um, and, you know, uh, especially a lot of students. And one student is from Vietnam and she's like, yeah, I really like my most passionate issue that I'm uh, the issue I'm most passionate about uh, since I moved to this country is medical debt because this is just something we don't have to deal with in Vietnam. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, really? What's it like over there? And she's like, well, you know, um, we, we don't have the like the latest technology, but at the same time, um, nobody is worried about being able to go see a doctor because or about like getting medical, like getting into medical debt. That's just not something that people are concerned about in my country. So, uh, and I was like, wow, it sounds like a really great place to live. <laughs> like, yeah, but, but um, yeah, it's wild. Like, I mean, if it's not just developed countries that I've already figured out, it's like many, many developing countries too. And so just like us in our bastion of backwardness out in America, trying to figure out, trying to like stumble forward. Um, yeah, so it, it needs to get done right now. Finally, what would be your closing pitch to listeners and voters in Michigan's 12th congressional district? I think I just want to everyone – I know everyone is, like, super confused when they hear that a medical student is running for Congress. So, like, you know, I, I'm taking a leave of absence to run um, because I think the issues in our country are way too urgent. We're done waiting on our politicians to do something about it. Uh, but when I tell people I'm a medical student running for Congress, everyone gets, like, so confused. They're like, how in the heck is a medical student running for Congress? Like, I don't understand. Like, is that something, is that even allowed? Is that in the rules? Like, can you do that? I don't get it. And I'm like, I understand it's a, it's a very weird, weird thing. But I think that I've got a halfway decent answer to how this whole thing came about. So when I was younger, I was really passionate about politics because I was taking a look at our mess of status quo. And I was thinking, you know what, it'd be really cool to do something about these big issues. Maybe I'll get involved in politics. Maybe we'll get involved in government, try to solve some of these problems. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized, oh, wait, actually, you can't count on the government to get anything done. Like, they will literally never do anything because they're just bought and sold by big businesses. And I was like, well, there's no way in hell I'm going to sign up to be uh, shielded corporations. Like, I can't do that. That's not me. I'm sorry. I'm out. So I guess I'm going to have to do something else then. And ultimately, I ended up in medical school because it's a way to help people, and then you're going through a really tough time. But uh, now times are changing, which is really exciting, and we've got a whole new generation of leaders who are saying we're not going to be beholden to corporate interests any longer. We're going to go out there and fight unapologetically for what people in this country need for us to get done. And that really inspired me to run uh, and to th start thinking about running because we are done waiting on all of these big issues. I mean, how much longer do we have to wait before politicians start taking this seriously? We need to go into this next term, the Democrats, just uh, elected officials in general, thinking like we are going to solve all these problems now. Like in this term, these problems will be solved. And like if we don't have that urgency, we are never going to solve these problems. So um, if you believe that this stuff needs to get done right now, that we're done waiting, that we on these big issues of climate change, of, uh, of college tuition, of health care in this country, racial justice in this country, getting big money out of a political system, then I would um, I would uh, ask for your support in this election uh, for everyone in the 12th congressional district, which is um, in Michigan, which is Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti, Dearborn and uh, the Downriver region. So. Um, please go to solomonrajput.com, <laughs> S-O-L-O-M-O-N-R-A-J-P-U-T.com. And, uh, you know, you can learn about um, our policies. Uh, you can donate if you want. Our election is in 35 days from today, which is crazy. And, um, 
and yeah, you can uh, figure out ways to get involved. So we'd absolutely love your help. Um, and we, we can't do it without you guys. So yeah, uh, really, really appreciate everyone's support and I really appreciate your time. Um, man, thank you so much for taking the time to interview me. Solomon Rajput, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much. That was Solomon Rajput, who's running for office in Michigan's 12th Congressional District. You can find out more about him on Twitter at VoteForSolomon or at SolomonRajput.com. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Thank you to this month's supporters on Patreon, Carolyn, Colin, Ibalashnikov, Janet, Jesse, Merrily, and Nikki, who helped to make this show even better. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>